0: You're listening to the Rescuer MBS podcast with hosts Laura McGladry and Marcel Rodriguez. For show notes and additional information, visit www.anchor.fm rescuer MBS or visit our Facebook page, Rescuer MBS Podcast. Rescuer MBS know your limits, improve your performance. Okay, welcome to another edition of Rescuer MBS Podcast. I'm your host Marcel Rodriguez, along with Laura Mcgladry, and we are socially distancing as we're supposed to be, and coming to you after a little bit of a hiatus, which I think most people understand because uh, we've had a few a few things going on over the last couple of months between coronavirus and everything else coming out in our world. It's uh, it's been a little busy, uh, wouldn't you say, Laura?
1: Yeah, there's been a lot going on, for sure.
0: And I think with that, the theme that we wanted to have for today's show is really talking uh, to our responder communities out there and talking through this situation.
1: Yeah, we thought this would be a good time to regroup and talk about what's in front of us. You know, I've been working uh, with different rescue teams on patrols and this preseason training and more and more we're still trying to train for the season. And when this, uh, as this event with the coronavirus keeps rising up around us, and it seemed like it was actually time for what many of us do in rescue, which is a phase change, right? This would be the time when some of us think we're heading out for a rescue and find out it's going to be a recovery. We actually have to stop in the middle of the mission and regroup and see where we're heading. And I I think that's probably a lot of the moment that we're in. A lot of the rescue teams and first-line responders right now that I'm working with are really having to adjust um, what their mandate or mission has been to one of more, whether it's supporting or social distancing or doing whatever they can in this moment. So we thought it might be a good time to gather and, and revisit some of the tools we have, like psychological first aid and see how what we know from the literature and best practice might be applied here for the rescue and uh, and first-line responder community.
0: And I think one of the things that's, that's uh, you know, as we work through this, the one thing that we're seeing is because this is a fairly, well, uh, uh, an unprecedented event in most of our lifetimes, that there's this whole spectrum of emotions that people may be feeling. So, you know, some may be overwhelmed and anxious, which is, perfectly reasonable. Others may not particularly know how to feel. Others uh, may not be feeling much of anything, but, you know, all of that different spectrum. I think what's important is for us to acknowledge that this is an unprecedented event, that this is something that we don't really have a context for, that for many of us, this is hard and it's scary. And I think just acknowledging that and giving ourselves and, and others some space to be okay with that. Uh, I think you know we're we're you know we're the people that that everyone else looks to to always know what's going on and always know how to help and I think for uh you know for some people, their version of helping just went up uh tenfold as they're you know working in in the healthcare industry. uh there may be other teams that just saw their season essentially disappear because the uh, resort that they work in just closed or the you know the park they worked in uh, that they work in is just closed. Um, Or they may be some of the other teams that that we're a part of that that are kind of trying to go through business as usual, but seeing how we fit this into the context of trying to keep physical distancing, trying to build in all of our new parameters into the the rescue work that we're doing.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important in this moment, I know this has been a lot of conversation both in the emergency department and rescue and fire, as those are some of the groups that I work with, that that we actually, um, we're, we're leading the way in this, right? We've never seen it done before. And part of that means that um, it's going to keep feeling over and over like everything's unpredictable. Like we just don't know what's going to happen next. And, you know, I can't think of a rescuer who likes that feeling of not knowing what the predictable next steps are. And we tend to be a crowd that really loves protocols or pathways or um, sort of algorithms uh, but I do think it's important, and we've, you know, even in the context, we're in different states, but um, in the front lines here, we, we know we've trained for epidemic and pandemic and disaster. We, we know there is a definable curve. There's a beginning and an end. And so part of this initial moment is just being able to stay with the and, you know, as we adjust to the new normal and what we know so far and knowing that we're going to, know more this time next week and um, we know more than we knew last week and so especially for those first line responders and rescuers who have to keep doing their job part of this right now is hanging in there with things changing all the time knowing that there will that the work volume may increase things may get crazy crazier but there will be, become something somewhat predictable unknown about this and so in some ways this is the really hard part um, of the moment because it feels so new and we're having to shift. And, and in this moment, we're not all shifting at the same time. You know, we're this uh, a 9-11. We all, at the same time of day, saw that event happen together. But this one is rolling across the country. It's affecting people in different ways. And so we're having to really reach out and try and connect with each other on what it means, which is, you know, it really is unprecedented. And that's why I think it's worth talking about it. Connecting what we do know and what we can
0: do. And I think the thing that seems especially de- destabilizing to a lot of the people that I'm talking to, and, and whether they articulate it specifically like this or not, is that because of the scale and and kind of the way this is unfolding, there's there's just this massive loss of agency that people are feeling. And I, th- I think that's a, a very destabilizing feeling to a lot of people. You know, just kind of where's the to your point about 9-11 is we kind of knew where that was. And we we knew that event and we could put a box around that event and respond to it. But now what we're seeing is as numbers increase in different places, as measures are taken in in different areas, uh, and and as we respond in very different ways based on who we are and where we are and and what our mission is, it's very much destabilizing to, I think, people in general and, and responders in particular, because we're so used to having this mission that we specifically train for and that we specifically know how to do it. And I think in certain areas of healthcare, it's something that is very much expected and and planned for, but in a lot of other areas of rescue, it just isn't. And I think that leaves a lot of people feeling like a, a little helpless in how they can help and how they can respond when we're used to helping and responding.
1: Well, let's look at that actually from what we know about stress injury formation. And we've talked about this um, on the podcast before there's there's sort of a formula to individual or i would say collective injury formation and we know that that definition of trauma i know i've mentioned it before when a, a stimulus overwhelms one's capacity to integrate it and in this case we know that that if already we know that injuries form when we feel overwhelmed and we don't we're not sure we have what we need for this moment we feel isolated and we feel helpless. So that's those of the ingredients for an injury formation. Let's say I get a call from a team and they say, hey, we just had this aviation crash. What do you think? And I listen for those details. And if they're present, I say, I think your team's at a high risk for stress injury. And so in a moment like this, we have to to look at what's very specific about a moment, and then we can counter it and do something. That's our efficacy. But in a moment like this, uh, the two things that are unique, like you said, is that We are not yet, and I think it's coming, feeling like we know many of us, you know, know that maybe the best thing we can do is just don't go out, just don't contribute to more. That doesn't feel like efficacy. So we have to find this other idea. But when we see a situation when there's high exposure, meaning everyone's in this together, and this low feeling of there's nothing I can do, that tends to lean us toward injury formation. And in the same way, when we look at other patterns of natural disaster, mass casualty, even man-made events, mass violence events, there is still this commonality where people come together, they connect, they hug, they grieve, they work together arm in arm. And so we're really having to lay down some new neural networks here to counter what is our number one Thing we have going for us culturally, when something hard happens, our most protective thing is connecting with each other. And this one does sort of set us up for social distancing and quarantine. So what that means for us, and I think the reason we want to talk about it, and we can talk about some very real tools, is that we just have to, we can't come at this like we always have. That's why the phase change. We have to actually think about efficacy in a new way and start with our own and then our team and then what we have into the community. And we're going to be inventing it as we go. We have to look for it. We can't lean on what we've done before. And then reinventing what connection looks like, which I know a lot of people have already been doing, but really leveraging it because of how protective it is in the literature and how much it matters.
0: One of the things I was looking at was this, this phenomenon of the, the toilet paper, right? So everybody's rushing out and you just think, what an absolutely irrational thing to do. Because you think of like on the whatever list you're making of the most important things I need to get for a disaster. Toilet paper is pretty low on my list. I was uh, uh, reading an article that went through and talked about, um, you know, kind of what's the psychology behind it. And the things that they came up with, you know, were that people resort to extremes when they hear conflicting messages. People react to a lack of clear direction from officials. I mean, there's panic buying. You know, everybody else is doing it. you think you do. We want to overprepare. It allows us to feel a sense of control, and I, I think as I was listening through those things, and hit me that a lot of those things are really in a different way talking about some of the elements that we talk about in psychological first aid. That if these these things aren't there, people people are more apt to have an injury. But those are also the things that we can do and apply to that situation to make it better. And it's interesting is that when you when you kind of looked at it in that you know in that context that. What seems a, a first like an irrational act seem more rational. It's that thing of, if I don't know what to do, this is doing something. And if everybody I, else thinks this is going to be make the situation better, well, now I've got this thing. And so empirically, I've taken some step to make, to make it better, to do, yes. to do some actual task or action, whereas everything else we're hearing is, you know, it's about in, inaction is the best action. And, and that that just feels, I think, wrong to a lot of people. It can't possibly be that the, the way to solve this whole thing is for me to sit on my couch and binge watch uh, Netflix for two weeks.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think the toilet paper thing is interesting. I would scale it in a different way, like how much toilet paper <laughs> you bought, right? So if you're at Costco behind, behind the person who's pulling like the third crate, of toilet paper and there's none left. And that seems to be more kind of a study of, of how and what, but I think it, you're right. It does speak to how much we need to feel like we have efficacy and that we're adding something. And what we'll talk about here is that efficacy or, or the, the, the definition of efficacy really is a sense that you're contributing to the greater or to the future, that you're getting yourself out of this or moving this forward. Um, But what we'll find is that there's this another level to that, which is actually service, which really is protective for people in this moment to get past. That gets us out of that survival mode and into what can I do for other people. And some people who are self-quarantining, they don't have to, but they're making difficult choices. You know, I was heading up to work with the Denali program before this got really going and I you know just sitting with like man me getting on an airplane right now isn't helping you know there was many a tear shed in that decision for me and so I I do want to bear witness to the people who are who've decided to stay home and when they could be doing other things because it's the only thing that they know they can do and I think that's that's efficacy too uh just is. it's hard to feel like it so I want to I do want to bear witness to that
0: yeah I, I I can um Within my community, uh, one of my communities, there's several retired healthcare professionals, and, and almost all of them have indicated a level of frustration and, and, and even greater than frustration with this, this thing of that they have a skill, but they're really in that sort of sweet spot for folks who need to self-quarantine. And just that frustration of not being able to contribute when they feel that they can, but also recognizing why that makes perfect sense for them to not be out and about and in the, you know, out in the public. But I think it's it's still, it's all, you know, as you watch it, it is very much contributing to what we can, you know, what we could identify as stress injuries and, and just not addressing it or not acknowledging it as a real thing, I think is... Uh, you know, problematic. And I think the other part is, is because there's so many big, you know, big things happening, meaning, you know, we see numbers, we see things happening. We see, quite frankly, we see people dying and, and people getting sick. And and the fact that a lot of this stuff around how someone's feeling and how it might be impacting them right now, I think like as in many disasters is, is something that kind of gets tamped down as, well, we'll kind of deal with that later, or that doesn't compare with how some other people are. So you know maybe it, it doesn't have as much legitimacy, and I, I think it's just acknowledging that that is legitimate to feel that way, and that these are these are legitimate injuries, these are very real things that can happen when we start feeling that lack of lack of agency, that lack of connection, that lack of hope. Those are the that's the recipe right there.
1: Yeah, I think you know what's been um, important as I've been working with frontline responders this last few weeks is to kind of go back to for those who know that stress continuum that we've talked about, that really kind of, this is leveling the, the playing field, that that everyone is going to be stress impacted, that there's no way to kind of, quote-unquote, green yourself out of this, that nothing gets to you and you're not feeling this, that it's not the goal. I think with first responders, because we tend to be others-before-self kind of people, um... The goal might not be to teach you not to be afraid, but maybe how to be afraid and keep going and keep staying resourced. Because I think what, what we're really looking at from a, a leadership standpoint is that there's a line there between stress impact and then long-term injury. And as I was working with the local fire department last week, I realized as this all was rolling in that these are injuries that we might be treating for years afterwards unless we jump in to mitigate now. And that's why I think um, jumping into what we know from the literature in natural disaster for first responders, et cetera, that we can do is part of our own. It's like putting on your own PPE. It doesn't does it take away your risk? Absolutely not. Does it lower or mitigate your risk of injury formation? Absolutely. So maybe we can jump into some of those tools.
0: Sure, absolutely. <laughs> We've both been working uh, diligently, uh, kind of at different ends of the same. At the same issue. So I think, uh, I, I certainly look forward to hearing some of yours and sharing some of the ones that I've been, been using that I, I think have been working as well.
1: Great. Yeah. Let's go back to what those foundations of psychological first aid and remember that those were in the middle 2000s. Those were originally, um, the themes that rose from the literature review, meta-analysis, expert consensus for what to do for both individuals and communities in times of unprecedented and unrelenting stress, natural disasters, etc. So that's that's really a place that we, we've we have less literature to know about pandemic, but there's a lot that we can adjust to a time where there isn't a quote unquote all clear, maybe one event and that we have to climb out of it that it's going to be ongoing for a while. So remember we've got we've got safety, calm, connection, efficacy and hope. And that and that first one safety actually what does it mean to establish safety in this moment? Um, and that means a lot of different things to different people. I think we're striving more in this moment for relative safety, which might mean a, a personal inventory of, am I at immediate risk right now? Am I in danger right now? And kind of moving out in those concentric circles. Am I, There's a lot of scary information coming, but in this moment, can I take a deep breath? And know that there's nothing around me right now that's going to hurt me. Kind of back to that grounding. And thinking actually about creating, and this applies to calm too, these corona-free zones where you can actually get a break, get your head above water, see that the tulips are coming up outside, and just notice the moment. Um, We're going to need to do that over and over again. Um, being protected from misinformation and rumors. And candidly, what came out in the disaster literature that could not be more relevant today is um, really choosing, not just choosing your media source, but being very intentional in your plan with how to engage in it. Many of us, you know, I work at the university, I have three appointments, the emails just roll in all day long. And if I didn't set up a few times for a daily roundup or an update, It would be a constant trickle of new information. So that is like a slow-moving disaster that I can never escape. So trusting that even in this event, even in our emergency department, there's a morning and an evening update. We don't need to keep updating continuously all day long. And many of us don't need to get our information source through um, just the news. We're going to see pictures and hear stories of things that are likely worse that are happening in our area and candidly may be worse than we ever experienced. So one of the things that came out of the early literature is, Hey, protect yourself from misinformation and try and in essence, sort of downgrade to the, to what is true. Um, but our brains, because of the negativity bias, especially if we're first line responders, we're prone to expect the worst things to happen. We call that leadership. You know, we got to be ready for that. We're going to create worst case scenarios And getting grounded in what's true right now and keeping our feet in the moment or maybe creating a a week or two-week plan and revisiting it is actually a way to establish at least a relative safety during this time and certainly is a good plan for those for us to share. Many of us are asked to share or support anxious family or relatives, friends. Those are pretty tangible steps. There
0: for safety. And I think also is is focusing on those things that we can control, you know, so if you can control your environment, if you control, as you say, these corona-free zones, not just from a pure, say, sheltering sort of health perspective, but also that that flow of information. I think that just keeping that environment safe for you and, and in the way that you see it.
1: Yeah, and I think getting, I think efficacy and that what you can control or what your locus of control will, let's circle back on that one in just a minute because there's a lot I think there as well. And I might link us to calm here because it's so related in some ways, but this one has been a really important topic for first line responders who are responding to people who may be sick or who may get sick themselves, just predictably. I know that many of the responders I work with here My state, you know, are planning the likelihood of getting sick and what are the effects on my family, etc. If we knew that you were going to get sick next week, (laughs) it's kind of a funny experiment. What what would we do ahead of time to prepare your body and get as resources as you can? I know many people are reaching for the vitamin C and the supplements, but let's think about the fact that that when you stay anxious and up all the time, watching the news, I can't sleep, I never come down. We're secreting cortisol during all that time. And so when we secrete cortisol at that level, not only do we not sleep, but we actually suppress our immune systems, like taking prednisone every day. And so creating opportunities to decrease arousal, whether that's a podcast and many of them like 10% Happier Headspace are free right now for first responders. Maybe this is a commitment that you make twice a day. Maybe it's a sleep commitment and a winding down from technology after 8 o'clock. Maybe it's being outside for an hour every day when you can. Um, Whatever those commitments, maybe it's exercise daily to decrease your arousal, but decreasing arousal actually boosts your immune system. And especially if you're going to be on the front lines, this has never been more important and candidly, you don't have to do this stuff for the rest of your life. Just do it through your deployment cycle, right, during this time when you know that you are likely to have to, to fight a virus.
0: But if you do happen to set up a good practice of a, a meditative practice during this time, feel free to carry it on for the rest all of your the life. All the better. All the better. But I think
1: for all of us right now, um, one of my friends in the ER who does distance running said, yeah, this is kind of, we got to do. take this in blocks. You don't say, I'm going to run 100 miles. You say, I'm going to run the next two. And that's you know, we're just let's plan for the next two miles. And what we've said to a lot of, you know, we we know a lot from the deployment cycles of humanitarian aid. Let's consider a two-week cycle and then revisit it. What can you do for the next two weeks, and then we'll come back to it.
0: Yeah, certainly. I think over the last couple of weeks, have probably recommended more people to various meditation applications and and things like that, just to because people are searching for something to just to help calm that all the different thoughts that are going on. And, and I think that, you know, a meditative practice, whether that's, you know, a guided meditation or whether that's just you going out and working in the garden or taking a walk or whatever it is that you do that's your meditative practice, this is a really, really important time to be getting grounded in that and making sure that you're, that you're making that a part of your life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that actually we could probably – skip to connection on this one because, um, I've been joking that the new vitamin C is actually connection. Um, and that's because we know we secrete hormones that actually help decrease arousal. We're incredibly supportive for, for connection, but we've already mentioned why this one is going to be so challenging. And some of us, um, have opportunity because we enjoy the person we live with in our house or the people and some of us don't and some of us live alone and some of us wish we did you know it's like all variations <laughs> of that there's a lot to say about who you get quarantined with and etc um or self-quarantine or who you're working with but you know one of the encouraging things that we've thought about for the first responder communities is they still get to go to work and work hard together and arm and arm and right now you know I was just training um, with the Denali team remotely and I was watching them all sit in the room together. And I just felt so jealous, like, man, I want to be in that room with other humans right now. And, and so um, that is one of the benefits of being first line is that you're still in there often arm in arm with people that you're very mission driven with in this moment.
0: Yeah. I think but, what, what we've definitely seen in, in, in the communities that I'm in with the response communities is that we've had to, cancel all trainings, cancel all meetings. So everything face-to-face is basically canceled for at least the next eight weeks or so. So um, I think the the struggle that we have there is that a lot of our community is built from a lot of face-to-face interaction. And so we've been really working on trying to move that to a virtual communication model so that we can connect through, we're just having uh, online hangouts where we get together and I've been doing this for, for several of my respond, responder communities that where we're just getting together and get together once a week for an hour. And there's no real agenda other than people just being together on a, on a phone line, on a video line. And, you know, we usually tell a few jokes and have a, uh, kind of kick it off with, uh, kind of our, our silly question of the day. So the one, the one that we had last night was, you know, what item in your food supply, when you get down to that, lets you know that you're really at the end. You know, everything's very serious right now. A lot of people, as you say, because of their living situations and different situations, they're becoming more and more isolated. And just getting that connection so they recognize they still belong to something that even if we're not together training at the same level that we were, we want to make sure that we're connecting at the same level. And that we're still having mission. We had a mission last night. It's uh, one of those things where we want to make sure we've really emphasized to people. We want them to be healthy so that when we do have to respond, they can be there, but that we can also do that in a way that's, that's going to keep everybody safe. We're at a really beneficial point right now with the level of access that people have through all of our devices to be able to connect through platforms that allow us to get 50 people on a, on a phone call and just chat back and forth and and just spend time together as we would if we were all in a room together.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I've, I've seen your team train. I have no doubt that in the spring you'll be doing six foot social distancing rigging sessions in the park um, and new innovations will be coming. Um, And I'm looking forward to hearing those. I think that we can also think about with connection, um, that really planning or building in buddy systems for those who are on the front lines right now that you have someone in your job that you're checking in with. This is what we do in humanitarian aid, um, and deployment that we, that you might ask for folks who are at home, but who care about you and can support you to maybe be, be a peer support team and create that with some kind of a, um, pre-plan and an ask. We're not always great at asking for this, but it is a lot to juggle, for instance, having your children at home and still having to go out and deploy. So if other people are wanting to drop off meals, do things for you, even while social distancing, um, that would be brilliant. And, And asking for that, I think, is really important. I think especially for the leadership right now in rescue, finding, designating high priority connection with other resource leaders and peers who are shouldering the kind of decisions that you are incredibly important. And then I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this, not all folks who are responding right now have the bandwidth to respond to the public or to sick people or rescue and still field all the phone calls from their friends who know they're in rescue or the people who also need <laughs> them for energy. Yeah. And so I actually think part of the pre-plan or planning for this might be having the no-call list or the limit to three minutes list, it's okay to say no to all the people who are saying, what are you seeing at the hospital? How sick are they? Like the answer is no. I only have a certain number, of, you know, amount of battery juice and I can't spend it on you right now. And that that is a phase change because normally we want to be those people and want to reach out, but to have a, a nice little script that says, would love to talk about this, too tired, I'm on the front lines, talk to you. No, you won't say that. But you know, something that says, "Why don't you call my brother or get back to me?" Or whatever.
0: yeah, well, I was about to say that. I think one of the one of the real valuable services that others can play, you know, people within your support system, is right. that if you have somebody who can be your filter to just say, "You know what? She just got home from work and really would yeah. just like to not talk about this for a while," or you know, yes. it's just it's 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 busy or, or whatever exactly. it is, but just yeah, just just to kind of We're be that a filter. free zone. Yeah. How about that,
1: she's in a corona free zone. <laughs> That's a Hey, the last thing about that too, I'll say is that we know that we're going to be in this for quite a while, so let's plan for sustaining connection, not just start high and we're going to do this, but let's get those things on the calendar that are recurring. Every week, you know, our clinic in Colorado, we're doing happy hour together on Friday because we need, after mitigating trauma all week with other folks, we need to be together and we want to have, we want to be able to laugh. We need that. We need that to be a Corona-free zone. So whether that's your emotional resilience gathering, whether that's your reading session, whether that's watching a movie with your sweetie on Zoom somewhere other else, whatever that is, like put it on the calendar and plan it for the long haul. Because like most things, we're going to start strong and see this start to Peter. And it is so important that we keep that connection going.
0: So. Yeah, we we've built these, uh, all the ones that I'm doing now, we we've, we've basically said they're going to be weekly for the duration Uh, and I'm doing both through the responder communities, through my work community. And I think it's, it's just a really, really super important thing as we start to see that, you know, I I think the other one to a point they made earlier is one of the things that we do on every, on every call that we have is that at the end of it or near the end of it, we always ask, does anybody need anything? You know, and, and even, and if you're not, you know, if you're not, if you don't want to say it out, you know, to the group, feel free to pick anybody on this call and, and let them know what you need.
1: Yeah, that's great. Let's um, let's round the corner on these last few here. I think um, you've, we touched on efficacy a bunch. I want to just introduce a couple quick concepts that come from the literature in this, that problem focused coping is really um, the goal for a lot of, for us right now. Um, these providing small wins that's what increases your sense of control and your locus of control. So achievable goals, right? That I'm gonna stay sane for one week, that I'm gonna reach out to three people, that I'm gonna finish this task, that I'm gonna homeschool my children, that I'm going to exercise three days this week, that I'm gonna send money to Haiti today because I know somebody, or whatever that is, um, this actually helps us to cope and it increases our efficacy. So there's a lot circulating right now about things that we can do that are supportive and we're looking to each other on this, having them be small and achievable rather than like, I'm going to start a new nonprofit that helps like, uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh, let's just start with, I'm going to, you know, whatever I can do, I'm going to go shovel my neighbor's walk because they can't get outside right now or whatever that is.
0: And I have to to say with that, the one thing that, you know, I've reflected a little bit on what's really surprised me the most during this whole thing, the thing is that, I've just been really amazed constantly how many people are doing some, some are doing enormous tasks, but you know, you know, whatever people making things free or whatever for the entire Mm. country. But there's also just so many people locally that are just trying to make it work, you know, and, and just doing all those little things, whether that's a store that's got a, a special hour in the morning for older or vulnerable shoppers, or whether that's someone who's, you know, reaching out and saying, hey, does anybody need groceries or or anything like that? I mean, I think it's just been, you know, even I just, you I know, mean, one of the things we've been doing to keep ourselves sane is, is go out and take a hike every day. And I've just noticed that on the trail, as we pass, you know, everybody just kind of normally does this sort of like, as you pass, you look the other way and you kind of don't breathe for, you know, 10 right. seconds or whatever it is. But it's just, <laughs> right. it's just this thing where people are just doing all of these little right. things that are just kind of getting you know, taking back from the chaos a little bit and grabbing back that agency and saying, you know, we're going to make, not only are we going to move forward, but we're going to do this, you know, this this isn't the zombie apocalypse movie where everybody ends up killing each other. This is right. the zombie apocalypse movie where everybody bands together and makes a greater society, which is kind of cool to see.
1: Well, and we have that reflected in the literature um, that that we see communities come together. We felt this after 9-11, you we know, did that liminal moment when, We were all like, hey, there you are, and here I am. And We're watching countries like Italy out on their balconies singing or Spain at a certain time coming out and clapping and applauding for the first responders. Let's look for those. There'll be more of those. Let's be a part of those. That is the very unique and beautiful part of never having lived in this moment before is that as much as we don't know what's going to happen... Um, with this virus, we also don't know what's going to happen in terms of our capacity to take care of each other and innovate for something new. So, so I think that those, those parts, you know, I think with efficacy, trying to find creating structure as much as you can. I know folks have heard about this, but actually creating your own individualized resiliency plan for sleep, for meals, for workout, for connection, for innovation, for service to others. And plotting out this couple weeks at a time, what am I going to do for my neighbors? What is, what's this going to look like? Actually, we know actually increases our sense that we can control or have some control over what's in front of us. And then I think this last one is maybe more elusive, but I think we've already been talking about it actually, um, about hope. And what was reflected in the literature is that those who could still maintain a sense that things can and will go forward that there's life after this moment. It's really, you could think about hope more as future, actually, that that there will be a curve to this, that the world may not look like what it does right now, but it'll look like something that we want to be a part of and that we want to be there to shape it, that we want to be a voice in that, that we have this opportunity. And when we look at hope, we're, we think about, and um, not just remaining future oriented, like, boy, I'm looking forward to my desert trip in whenever September, because we don't know about that stuff. But what about today? What's on the path ahead? This is where that structure really comes in and planning. Let's plan for two weeks from now to be, for there to be a lot going on. You know, I know some states are starting to anticipate when they might have a peak. And I think you think about in rescue when we say to someone, Hey, here comes a helicopter, right? We're going to fly him out a short haul It's going to get really loud. There's going to be a lot of rotor wash. It's going to feel kind of crazy. And then we're going to get you in there and it's going to be real quiet. Or I'm going to reduce your leg. It's going to be really painful. And then you're going to feel this. This sense of like, we knew this was coming and now we're in, you know, it's like the tornado's coming, the wind is blowing, it's going to get louder, a couple windows might break out and then things are going to recede. That's kind of what we're needing to model for each other. And, and actually we know, and again, I know I keep saying based on the literature, but we can actually see the brain science that a gratitude practice or a journal right now to say, look what is working. Look what we do have. Man, isn't it good that this happened before this happened or that I have this or that we're here together or whatever it is actually keeps telling our brain, yeah, a lot of things are going right for us right now in this moment. And so I think When we look at hope, we have to be able to both bear witness to how truly hard it is for many people out there right now, how truly scary and dark this moment is, and what we have going for us, and the reasons that we still do hope. And it's going to be a moment where I lose hope and you lend me your flashlight for a while, and then you lose hope and I'm going to do the same for you, and we're going to just have to stay arm in arm and move forward with the light on the path, just one step at a time with what's in front of us.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's a real key to keeping that hope is the fact that this is a it's a group exercise, you know, this is a team sport and and we we keep that hope alive in each other as it ebbs and flows within us by by being there for each other. And I think that's why when you look at all those other, you know, especially the connection piece that that is so absolutely tied in with with the hope pieces that we we need to have those we need to have those big communities and you know so I've been really emphasizing to people that like if you're participating in in one of these communities that we're doing virtually then feel free to do the same you know whatever communities you have whether that's you know whether the beekeepers or the you know people who you know grow tulips or whatever it is or or anything, like whatever your group is, you know, just, just get them together. And then there's, there's those couple of people in your life that, you know, that maybe you're a little more frontline than you or, or just that yeah. you, you kind of work, think about and, and just put them on your list to text them every day and say, how's it going? Just yeah. wanted to, I was just thinking about you, how are you doing? You know, and Absolutely. I think, and I think that's, that's the part that's, you know, that's how we, we pass this hope back and forth. It's like a, you know, it's like the Olympic torch, right? We pass it back and forth and, as long as we all keep it burning, then uh, then we're good.
1: Yeah, you know, today we were talking about from the emergency department folks, like there will, you know, it's a it's a tough scene. It's a man. There's a tidal wave coming, and we can feel it, and we don't know what it's going to be like yet. You know, if you're on those front lines or hospital staff, etc. But I I think what we also know is that we've never had a chance to show who we are like this before, and what we talked about today is that, you know, many of us will be who are out there trying to get to do whatever we can. And this idea of service, there'll also be this moment where we'll be like, hey, where were you? What did you do? Tell me your story. How did you make it through? And we have this tremendous opportunity to see what we don't usually get to see in each other in a moment like this. And I think what maybe in, In closing, we can think about doing, again, those concentric circles. Like if you have enough, whether that's toilet paper or resource, yes, I'm afraid, but I'm also ready to do the next thing, then you probably have enough to be calling your neighbor, reaching out to someone you know feels terrified or alone, or maybe it's just on your team and you go out to that next circle. And maybe if you have enough there, you can start thinking about people who live in your city or what's happening again in Haiti or South Africa. What can I contribute outside of this moment? And certainly the more you're able to, this gets back to charging your own batteries and it's okay to do this. As a matter of fact, you must so that you have enough overage to really be one of the ones who keep lighting that torch because, um, you know, it's going to get windy and that flame's going to get low. So the things we do now are really going to sustain us for the long haul. They really
0: matter. Well, so. I think, and I think service in in this context, service is such a wide net to cast, right? It's not like there's one definition. It's all these. Like little the opportunities things is, are endless. Yeah, there's there's sure. there's no, I, you know, I keep I've 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 had to I've had talks with some people who I know that, that are responders that are. Kind of in standby mode right now, and and they're right. they're, they're feeling a real frustration of a That's right. a, a guilt of, of not responding. And you know, I kind of told them, I said, this this is this is a long haul. By the time this is over, there is plenty of hero time for everyone. Trust me.
1: Right. Well, know, and it's like any rescue when you show up and someone says to you, "Why don't you sleep tonight so you can take the day shift?" You know, or yeah. vice versa, and you're like, "No, I, I want I want out there." Like sometimes this is the leading example by like okay i'm going to stay home get as resources as i can and be at the ready and that's my offer
0: yes it's, it's the rescue of of when you when when you uh when you know, when you respond to a rescue and they've got enough people and they kind of put you on like the second or third <laughs> oh, wave and you're like yes. you're like oh no I'm on the second. And, coach- then, and i just i just i you know i know when i'm on that first wave and when that second or third wave shows up and you're totally tapped and all you're just like Oh, wow. thank God you're here. You know, like
1: absolutely. Oh my
0: gosh, you know. And
1: let's think about how much we want and need those people to show up. Like, yep, we got this. We've been waiting. You're, you can go. Whether you're sick or whether you're tired or whether you need your two weeks out, we're here. And that is a. There will be time, and that is a tremendous offering. So. So I think there's, there's so much to talk about. But there's a lot to digest. So um, why don't we post some of these on the website as well so folks can read through them for psychological first aid. And we'll, we'll revisit this again soon.
0: Absolutely. So I, I, would, I would as we social distance here, I would, uh, I would wish you to stay safe and stay connected and to keep reaching out and to keep that hope. We're all in this together. We're here with you. And you're here with us and we're all passing that uh, that hope back and forth. So be that flame bearer for someone else and, and kind of let them light their flame off you when they need it and accept the part that we have a hard time with, accept that that, uh, that offer of the flame from somebody else when you need it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And reach out to us too. Let's, let's innovate. Let's share our innovations. Like you tell us what we haven't thought of. We'll tell you what we're thinking about and, and let's keep that sort of, this brand new moment alive by sharing what we're doing.
0: So. Yeah. If you, if you have something that's working, feel free to drop us an email or put it on our Facebook page or, um, or through a message, a voice message on our anchor page. Um, you know, any of those will work. And we would love to be able to share what's working because I think there's a lot of people out there that are looking for what's working uh, in different places. And rather than reinvent the wheel, if there's something great out there, we would love to be able to share that.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time, Marcel. I'm giving you a six-foot distance, social distance, other state fist bump. Yeah. Well, no,
0: we don't fist bump anymore. Now we, we, uh, do, the now foot, we, we do the foot tap. The foot tap. Okay.
1: Foot, tap. Foot, foot tap. Until next
0: time. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. This has been the Rescuer MBS Podcast. Please subscribe to receive new episodes and interviews as they come out. Contact us at rescuermbs at gmail.com. Rescuermbs, know your limits, improve your performance.